0: You know, what? it's interesting. I think if you think about small L classical liberalism of the 18th century Enlightenment variety versus the more modern left and the more sort of, you know, Trumpy right, the difference between that classical liberalism and either poll is that classical liberalism is very much about this idea that, well, the reason why the government's powers have to be limited is because one day the government would be controlled by people who are against you. So you want to make sure that when the government is run by people who are against you, you are less vulnerable to the government. It may feel good that the government today is on your side and supporting what you want, but what if it's not, right? And I think that the, uh, the more sort of modern left that's a, that is cr- critical of that liberal philosophy and the modern right, which is critical of that liberal philosophy, looks at it more as a pure power struggle as well basically, our lesson from that is we should always run things and make sure the other side doesn't. And and so what you see on both sides, frankly, is uh, when when the right is in power, you hear a lot more people on the left use liberal arguments. And when the left is in power, you hear a lot more people on the right use liberal arguments. Uh, But there's only uh, a, 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 a smaller cohort of people who are consistently using those arguments regardless of who's in power. And Bitcoin is the kind of technology or tool or instrument that that works in either direction. It's it's a it's a protection against censorship from both the right or the left.
1: Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner Podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Ovid Roy. Ovik is the founder of the nonpartisan political think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Ovik most certainly did not have a traditional path to this position. He went from medical school at Yale to Bain Capital to Romney's campaign to the hedge fund world and now the director of FreeOp. To my knowledge, Ovik has not yet won an Olympic gold medal nor been to space, but I'm sure it's just a matter of time. In my conversation with Ovik, we dig into why he believes Bitcoin is one of the most important progressive forces we have seen in decades. And why he's pushing for bipartisan adoption of Bitcoin. Had such a wonderful conversation with Ovik, I know that you will thoroughly enjoy this episode as well. Thank you so much for listening. Ovik Roy, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. Thanks, Mark. So, it is nearly 42 years ago to the day that the USA hockey team has beaten the USSR. Yep. And y- you see your father an Indian immigrant, jumping up and down on the couch, cheering. What did that moment mean for you, and what did it mean for your father?
0: You know, I was, uh, I was seven years old at the time, and, uh, you know, there was nothing more than just you being in the moment, right? I don't think, it, even as a kid, I understood how incredible of an achievement it was. I was just a, a kid rooting for America against, against the Soviet Union. It meant a lot more to my dad, who, um, you know, who grew up more in the shadow of the Cold War than I did, but uh, but he was a guy who, you know, I remember him coming to me, you know, uh, when I was a kid and showing me some academic research, actually, because he was a he was an academic um, saying that, like, look, the Soviet Union is not going to be able to go on forever. Um, uh, all empires fail and, the, and their empire will fail, too. And, and they're not going to be able to keep up with our with our ability to innovate and grow. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, dad, because yeah, I think kids of my generation, we grew up assuming that the soviet union would be there forever and and that the cold war would go on forever and that we'd probably end up in another nuclear war cuz you have an enemy like that at some point there's going to be some some mishap that leads to war we'd we grown up in the 20th century with periodic uh, world wars so there was no reason to believe there wouldn't be another one pretty soon obviously that's not how the world has 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 worked out and i think that among other things it's it's been um It's been great to see that we've been able to, at least for this stretch of time, lived in a world of certainly relative to the 20th century, a lot more peace uh, and prosperity than, than we had then.
1: The desire to go to medical school and the desire to pursue public policy, I'm assuming, have similar origins for you. Was there a formative experience that led you to want to focus on bettering the lives of others?
0: You know... It's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I feel like that was just how I was wired from the beginning. In fact, it's funny when people used to ask me when I was a kid, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to be a doctor? And I'm like, no, I I would grimace. I'd be like, I don't want to be a doctor because I don't want to profit off of other people's suffering. That was sort of my standard line as a, as a six-year-old when, when someone would ask me if I wanted to be a doctor. And, um, Obviously, I eventually got over it and went to medical school but but with a very um a, a focus more on for me what what could I do to contribute to the world in some way? I was convinced that that was something that I ought to center my life around and I, again, I can't really explain it except to say that it's just it's just what i the way i I, I always felt about it and it was it's kind of like a fish not really understanding what water is. I just sort of felt like the purpose of. My life should be to leave it better than I found it and, and, and to do something worthy of the opportunities that I've been given in the world. And, and that's just how I thought about it. I never really thought about it any other way. So all I can, that's the only way I can explain it, really.
1: You've taken this desire to help others into your mission at FreeOp mm-hmm. to help achieve equal opportunity for all. I, I'm curious to know how you are defining equal opportunity uh, as it relates to FreeOp's mission.
0: You know, that's another great question. And and I think I'll, I'll, I'll um, tell you a story. So I remember one time I was making, I made a kind of an offhanded comment in a blog post. This is probably 10 years ago. Now Uh, I was having a little, uh, internet argument, blogosphere argument with Ezra Klein, who, uh, who your, your, your listeners will remember, uh, from the Washington post and from Vox.com and now the New York times. And, and Ezra and I are friendly and he, uh, I I made some comment about how, you know, the the we were talking about I think the future of of uh of the right left debate and I was saying something about how the future of the right left debate should center around equal opportunity and not equal outcomes and he wrote a I can't remember if it was a column for the post or a blog post but he wrote something for for the Washington Post where he basically said well, you know, that's such a kind of cliched statement because at the end of the day, what is equal opportunity? Is equal opportunity ensuring that every kid has a good education? Is it ensuring that every kid, everyone has access to affordable health care? Like, or is does equal opportunity mean you know you do none of that and just kind of uh, uh, see what see what what uh, what society organically offers? Uh, those are all very different interpretations of equal opportunity that require a certain amount of debate. And that was a really good point. That really got me thinking about something that you hear a lot of libertarians say. So you hear a lot of libertarians, hardcore, purist libertarians, the ones who believe that government intervention in the economy and society is always bad. They will say that the the philosophy of equal opportunity is wrong and misplaced because to guarantee equal opportunity requires state intervention. For example, a good example is the public schools. Like public schools are government entities, right? So a, a hardcore libertarians would say we should not have uh, public schools. All schooling should be uh, organized voluntarily through private uh, charities and organizations. And actually, it's very interesting because John Stuart Mill, the, the philosopher from the 19th century, actually talked about this in some of his work, that he was, a, you could call him the first liberal, at least in the modern sense of the term liberal, and that he was someone who, because he believed in equal opportunity, believed in the importance of public school and felt that it was appropriate for the government to fund, to for taxpayers to fund uh, schools so that everyone could at least have some... Uh, uh, leveling a level playing field in terms of, of participating in the economy and participating in society. Uh, and so all, all this to say that, that I think the debate about how you define equal opportunity and how you achieve it is one where there's no objective right answer. I think it's a place where there is room for debate uh, among people of good faith. And a big part of why that's really relevant to, to the creation of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity my think tank is that we're living in a time where the conventional wisdom in Washington, the conventional wisdom among people who think about politics and policy, is that we're hopelessly divided, that the right and the left have fundamentally different worldviews, fundamentally different values, and therefore it's one side has to win and one side has to lose, and you pick your side and you basically... It's a death at the death match, a cage match to the death and uh, and to to win or lose. And actually, there's an enormous amount of evidence to suggest the opposite is true. that if you actually look at public survey data, you look at opinion uh, polls, and you just talk to your friends on the street, if if you don't live in a place like Washington, especially, you find that actually most people have the, are united in what they think America should stand for, what they believe. Uh, America is and is at its best, a place where everyone has a fair shot at success. And again, going back to what we were talking about before, we can disagree about what is required for everyone to have a fair shot at success um, and how to achieve a fair shot at success. But if we're having that debate, that's not really a debate about values. That's a debate about evidence and a kind of a pragma- pragmatic uh, discussion of, of of how to achieve real world results based on the resources and, and technologies and capabilities that we have. And so the the uh, the, the approach that we've taken is to say, actually, eighty percent of Americans agree on what America should stand for. Uh, we just maybe have some general, uh, we have some specific disagreements or, or intuitions about how to achieve it, and let's let's think about that. Let's do the research to identify opportunities to unite people who think of themselves as being Democrats or Republicans or independents and bring them together. Because at the end of the day, in Washington especially, you can only achieve real change if you can bring people together. Uh, There's just the way our system is designed. One party rule doesn't actually achieve most of what you want it to achieve. If you're a hardcore progressive and you thought okay Biden's got the white house and the democrats have congress so i'm going to be able to pass all sorts of uh, the, the congress can pass all sorts of stuff that i want them to pass obviously it hasn't worked out that way and it didn't work out that way for republicans in 2017 either that's just not the system we have so i think the way we look at it is instead of having a washington politics where you split the difference and the end the end result is a status quo just gets perpetuated how do you achieve real change that unlocks opportunity for more people? You've got to bring people who think of themselves as Republicans, who think of themselves as Democrats together. And the way to do that is around an equal
1: opportunity agenda. How has that agenda been received on Capitol Hill thus far?
0: It's interesting. You know, we were, so we were founded in 2016, the, the year of, of the election that, uh, that had such an impact on our politics. And- I think, you know, so someone like me, I have a uh, a bit of a Republican resume, as as many of your listeners will know. I worked for Mitt Romney. I worked for some other Republicans. Um, and I think that the thing that I want, there, there were three things I worried about when we started free up in terms of what are the risks or challenges that we have to overcome. One is I'm, I'm pretty well known in terms of the public policy world, in terms of where I've come from, who I've worked for, my resume, things like that would that uh, affect my ability to, to? would people just say, you know, you have an R next to your name, therefore we're not going to trust you. We're not going to care what you think. That was concern number one. Concern number two was, would we attract good people? Because obviously when you're starting a new thing, you're not well-established. Uh, uh, we don't have any prestige or any brand. You know, how would that affect our ability to actually recruit the caliber of people that we needed to recruit for this mission? And then the third thing was, um, you know how how do we do in terms of uh, of uh, persuading members of Congress to go along? So, I would say on on the first two, we actually did we i think far exceeded our expectations. I think uh, what's been really great is that uh, you know, obviously you know this well, and your listeners know this well. there's a there's a robust debate on on the left to center side about whether markets and technology and innovation and entrepreneurship can be a force for good or whether we have to have a complete suspicion of, of the private sector in 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 the way we think about the world, um, but and, but that former group, the group that wants to harness markets to be more inclusive, is very very aligned with us, and um, uh, so that part's been great. I think we found that that the ability to to have uh, a lot of engagement across the political spectrum has been has far exceeded our expectations, and that goes from uh, that goes on the hill as well on Capitol Hill among uh, de- Democrats Republicans. I think. We've worked hard to cultivate a reputation and a, and a credibility around. Look, you may not always agree with what we say, but we're we come upon, we arrive at our views honestly and with no ad hominem attacks, no assumption that you're a terrible person if you disagree with us, and, and we'll always work with you on the issues where we agree. So I think that all that's been really good. We've attracted a, an astoundingly high caliber of scholar and, and, and staff to work with us. I think what I've realized is that. Uh, I've come to appreciate is that millennials and Gen Z scholars, precisely for the same reasons, you know, you think about the rest of of the things that we consume in the world, we're not attached to legacy brands. Uh, It's true with think tanks too. I, I think a lot of people look at it like, I would rather work for a new think tank that's aligned with my values than an old think tank that isn't, even if it's 80 years old and has a much bigger budget. And so I think that has worked in our favor in terms of attracting really good people. The thing that's been the hardest, the hardest to overcome has been the incredible power of incumbent industries to block uh, pro-innovation, pro-consumer, pro-taxpayer reforms. I think that has been the brick wall that we've overcome at times, but has been by far the biggest challenge that we've had, is that you know, in a lot of the areas that we work on, so we restrict ourselves to saying, we will not work on an issue unless it meets two tests. One, it expands freedom in some way, innovation, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, and it meaningfully improves the lives of Americans on the bottom half of the ladder, whether they have their incomes or wealth or below the U.S. median. That's the, the test we use. And when you use that as your screen of what you'll work on, we end up working on a lot of stuff that's around that, that affects cost of living, whether it's more the more generalized inflation type stuff that, again, your listeners will be very familiar with but also more, more general cost of living stuff that, that preceded our present debate about inflation, like the rise of healthcare costs, the rise of uh, post-secondary education costs, the rise of housing costs. So a lot of, some of that's driven by what the Fed does and, and some of it is driven by other government policies. So, so that's, that's, that ends up being a lot of our work. And, and what we found is that When you work on those issues, the people who oppose you the most are the industries that benefit from the status quo, who benefit from high prices, who benefit from limited competition, who benefit from high barriers to entry. And they have a lot of money and they have a massive economic stake in preserving the way the system works today. And you know we're a pretty small uh, minnow in that in that ocean of of uh, in terms of the battle that we're trying to fight. So that that's the hardest problem we we ha- we have to deal with, and one that we uh, we're always thinking strategically about how to overcome.
1: You certainly weren't alluding to the uh, hospital association, were you? Well, they
0: uh, you know that's a, <laughs> I'm glad you brought the hospital association up because you know that's what's interesting about that, and I would say one thing that I think about as a as a common blind spot among progressives is the incredibly pernicious role of monopoly nonprofit entities, right? I think among a certain kind of progressive, there's this view that, well, if you're a nonprofit institution, you're one of the good guys. And if you're a for-profit institution, you're one of the bad guys. And it's really kind of a, almost a propaganda victory to call a tax-exempt organization a nonprofit just because you have you're a 501c3, and I run a 501c3, so I should know. You know, just because you call yourself a 501c3 doesn't mean you don't care about making money. It just means that you don't have shareholders and dividends. But say hospital systems or universities or many of these other, you know, uh, you know multi trillion dollar industries that are non-profit, quote unquote. They're really what they are is just tax exempt for profit institutions. It's just that the profits aren't distributed to shareholders. They're distributed to the leadership of those entities, and so their salaries are massive. Like you go to any hospital, um, you know their salaries are like ten million dollars at the at the at the C-suite level or more, and uh, or to to or to intermediaries. They're, you know the the deputy assistant dean for X, you know, which doesn't need to exist, but is a way of absorbing all that extra tuition that you're you're paying your college. Uh, uh, that that's a big part of the problem too. So. You know, again, these are where incumbent industries are. Uh, if you can disrupt them, if you can create, create innovation that works around that and, and create lower prices for, for ordinary people, um, the end result is, is super positive. And, and nonprofits are as much a part of the problem
1: as, as for-profits in that regard, so-called nonprofits. One of the main issues that you are hoping to unite the right and left on is Bitcoin. Yeah. To that end, um, I'm wondering if an open source permissionless, available to all, non-confiscatable monetary network begins to bridge that gap between individual liberties and the progressive sense of collectivism.
0: I hope so. I mean, one of the things that, well, well the, the, the progressive case for Bitcoin, I mean, you've, you you can make it better than I do, so I, I don't even want to attempt to make it in, in, your, in your presence. But if we think of progress as equal opportunity, as, uh, as particularly increased equality and in opportunity, and also in ways to protect yourself from things that can destroy your own ability to, uh, to save and invest for your own future and not have that robbed from you by bad policy. Bitcoin is one of the most progressive inventions of our, of our lifetimes, if not the most. There is a version of, of what gets called progressivism. I wouldn't call it progressivism, but you know what, what can get called progressivism, where if something can't be controlled by the government, it's it's not seen as progressive. It's only progressive if it's, as uh, some people in the government today call it, inside the regulatory perimeter. If it's not within the regulatory perimeter, it's, it's lawless. It's the Wild West. It's a place where social Darwinism reigns and, and consumers and ordinary people are left vulnerable to the rapacious, ruthless uh, capitalist system. And to me, uh, Bitcoin really does not fit that description because- what Bitcoin allows you to do is, uh, is again, save and invest for yourself in a way that protects you from, from the rapaciousness of banks. Who there are no fees to be charged. You know, once you're in the Bitcoin st- on the Bitcoin standard, uh, and you're transferring money on the Lightning Network, um, yes, you can screw it up yourself, and you have to have a certain amount of uh, you know awareness of how to how to own your own keys and things like that. But all the things that the banks do that we hate. You become protected from. You become insulated from. Uh, and over time, as as Bitcoiners and others work hard to to build that parallel system up, I think what you know what the critics of our modern banking system will find is that Bitcoin is a solution to a lot of those problems. And it's uh, you know I know a lot of people are trying to convince Elizabeth Warren of that and haven't really made much headway. But uh, but clearly, I mean, I, I you know. Her critique of the banking sector is no different than my critique of the banking sector. It's just, we, may, we just disagree on the solution.
1: Where does that disagreement on the solution come from? That's one of the things that I've I really valued about free op is that you are more concerned about the end and not necessarily the means by which to get there. Is it just those that are, that are in power that, again, are trying to defend their uh, way of doing things that, that, that leads to that type of thinking?
0: You know, I think it's, it's different for different people. I mean, obviously, we're all creatures of habit, right? And so if, if, you, if you just fundamentally, your, your politics comes from a place of, uh, maybe it's from your own life experience. You've had bad experiences with certain private sector actors, certain corporate actors, and, and you've been so scarred by that that you, you trust politicians or the government to, to fight for you in a way you don't trust corporations to fight for you. You see them as out for yourself. And vice versa. There are obviously a lot of people who feel vice versa. Right. I think the way I personally look at it, and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that every, you know, free op is a place where you know there's no party line. People can have different views on things. So I, I will just say, speaking for myself, that people are people. We're all capable of being selfish and greedy. We're all capable of being um, generous and kind in, in various degrees. And you find good and bad people in government, and you find good and bad people in the private sector, and you find good and pe- bad people in your neighborhood. And um, no type of institution is immune from the vices and vagaries of human nature. And uh, the, the the problem with trusting the public sector is is twofold. One, bad people and incompetent people can be can can be involved in the government in ways that insulate the government from accountability for its own effectiveness and success by the standards we would measure it at. Another piece of it, which is more pernicious, is what sometimes economists call regulatory capture, right? You have an agency, a government agency that's supposed to regulate industry, but those those people who work in that government agency are wanting to get jobs at Goldman Sachs or uh, JP Morgan or whatever it is. And, and so they're, uh, they're friendlier to those uh, uh, those industry players than you would want them to be because they're looking to get those jobs. So if JP Morgan says, say, hey, we need this, that person who wants a job at JP Morgan just says, okay, let's do that. And that's a huge problem that that's very hard to to avoid. If you have the government, if you have a government agency in control of a particular part of the economy or have oversight over it, it's very hard to avoid that problem. On the flip side, corporate power is a huge problem too. And I think this is the blind spot of a lot of people in the free market world, uh, on the libertarian to conservative side, who... Um, just assume that in any debate, the, the business side of the, equa- the argument's going to be right, and the government side of the equation is going to be wrong. And in cases where an industry has created a monopoly or an oligopoly, or where they've bent the rules uh, in terms of legal rules to, to favor themselves over upstart competitors or the consumer or the taxpayer, that's a problem. And uh, And too often there's this kind of knee jerk uh, on the right side of the equation. Uh, a knee-jerk um, assumption that businesses always have um, the 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 most public spirited of motives, and they don't always. They're usually looking out for themselves, and I think the 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 sort of realistic Adam Smith case is well, when they're looking out for themselves in a truly free market, the public benefits from that, and and that can be true in certain cases, uh, but in certain cases it's not true, and and so that's where I think we try to look at things. More you could say, case by case, and just to your point, you know, be more oriented to to the to the outcome. and I think we we start from the place of saying innovation and entrepreneurship is good. They tend to lead to more inclusive outcomes than we had before, but you can't assume it. You have to actually um, uh, always make sure that that's the the end result.
1: You have written that those who are most vulnerable to inflation and those who live paycheck to paycheck have the most to gain from an asset that is protected from inflation. So why do you believe that this is Bitcoin's problem to solve, as opposed to some other financial instrument or UBI? Well, uh,
0: the, the very design of Bitcoin, as you know, and as many of your listeners will know, is, is, is to be inflation resistant in the way that traditionally in monetary theory we define it, which is to say the supply of Bitcoin is fixed. The supply of the U.S. dollar is not fixed. It's determined by the Federal Reserve uh, and Uh, It's doubled in the last ten plus years. The number of dollars in circulation. The economy has not doubled over the last ten years, and that means that each dollar has less purchasing power than it had before, all else being equal. And um, that's a huge problem, and one that that continues to get worse over time for reasons we can get into. But the end result is that that Bitcoin is a safe haven. It's like you know, gold can be like it. Gold can be a safe haven as well. At least traditionally, it's been thought of as a safe haven. There are a couple of challenges with gold, um, the, the, the most important being that it can be stolen much more easily than Bitcoin can. It's less secure. And if you own a lot of it, which, of course, lower income people wouldn't necessarily, but if you own a lot of it, you can't move it very quickly. Uh, you have you, 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 If you have it in a warehouse somewhere, it's not like you can just pick it up and take it to an airport and fly it to some other place. Whereas with Bitcoin, you have the ability to keep it and um, take it with you, even if uh, really bad things happen in this country and there's and there's a lot of chaos, uh, you have the ability to secure your Bitcoin and own it. And unlike a lot of other kinds of investments, it's very you can own it in very small amounts, right? I think you know you don't have to own one Bitcoin. As you know, you can own uh, ten satoshis. And that really matters, because the, that makes it accessible to the average person or even the below average person in a way that that uh, in terms of income that uh, compared to any other asset. And one of the things that's really driven a lot of wealth inequality in this country is uh, the way the, the Securities and Exchange Commission has restricted the most attractive investments to the wealthy. You literally are not allowed. it's illegal to invest. In a Google or an Apple or Facebook, when it's getting off the ground, if you are not a "quote unquote" accredited investor, which the SEC defines as you make uh, you made over the last two years two hundred thousand dollars a year, and or you have a net worth of over a million dollars. Now, some of these rules are starting to change, uh, both in bad ways and good ways. But the, but the broader point is that over the last forty years, this incredible growth in the in the tech sector, the vast majority of Americans have not been allowed, have been legally barred. From participating in it, and this—the thing about crypto and Bitcoin in particular—is that the opposite is true. Actually, the people who've been the most embracing uh, toward Bitcoin have been the ones who've been excluded from uh, from that old system. And so that alone, having access to uh, entrepreneurship as a lower-income person, is incredibly important. And, and, and this is where, again, this. What I might call the Elizabeth Warren paradigm of progressivism has been really wrong. You know, the, the Elizabeth Warren para- paradigm is to say we have to protect ordinary people from the risks that their Bitcoin holdings can go down in value. And I would argue the opposite is true: that by "quote unquote" protecting them, we we basically prevented them from taking part. And there there are ways to solve that. For example, one thing that that I've uh, been talking about with people, and, and I'm going to write something about this soon. Is okay. I get the point about you want to make sure that people understand what they're investing in. You want to not encourage people to speculate in a way that's super destructive, and you want to have some sort of balance there. Well, there are ways to do that. And we all we we have a driver's license to drive a car, right? Why can't you just have a free public service in which, much like in the financial industry, we call them Series Sevens? There are these uh, financial licenses that you have to be to be like a registered securities dealer. What if we made those things that were freely accessible? If you, if you studied and you took an online test and you passed it, you could get a Series 7 certification. And then you would know how a bond works. You'd know how an option works. You'd know that Bitcoin is volatile relative to U.S. dollar. You'd understand what compound interest is. And so you'd have these basic, this basic financial literacy that could then enable people to go out and invest in the next Facebook. And that would be a, a much more democratized uh, way of giving people access to, to entrepreneurship. So I'm, I'm sort of going a little bit far afield, but all this to say that, that the government over the last 40, 50, actually really 90 years, because this all really starts with the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934, uh, a piece of New Deal legislation, we've over this past century or so prevented the vast majority of Americans from participating in the, grow- the, the highest growth areas of the economy. And so is it any surprise that today we have more wealth inequality than we did before?
1: Knowledge determining whether or not you can invest in a financial product and not how much money you make. Right, exactly. I think that's perfect. In your recent National Affairs article, Bitcoin and the U.S. Fiscal Reckoning, you make the case that Bitcoin can help maintain America's economic leadership. I'm curious to know what pushback and critiques that you've received about the piece from Capitol Hill.
0: You know, it's interesting. I think that the the reaction from the reaction from the Bitcoin community has been uh, amazing and astounding, and a lot of enthusiasm. Really, uh, the caliber of kind of Bitcoin OGs who DM'd me on Twitter when they read the piece was just uh, really gratifying and and uh, uh, and shocking. Really, uh, on the on the DC side, uh, it's been a couple of different reactions. I think there was a group that was was a bit aligned with the Bitcoin, but we're like, wow, this is um, the best people who are sort of skeptical or agnostic about on Bitcoin who would say, oh Vic, this is the best uh, article I've read about Bitcoin. This is the article I will send to my other friends who don't know anything about it. I would say at this point, everyone's heard about Bitcoin. So it's it's like, here's the article that I can send my other DC friends about Bitcoin to help them understand why they should pay attention to it, which was kind of the, one of the big goals of the pieces. So that was, I think that was good. It's kind of like an educational tool more than anything else, more than a did I did you agree with the policy arguments? or not? I think just people just sort of saying, wow, OK, this makes sense now. And I, I think one thing I try to do in the piece and I and I hope with with some success is I think that the, the one of the resources of skepticism of Bitcoin is that it's new. Right. And and, and and Washington in general and the policy community in general is very skeptical of new ideas, new things. New ideas are just sort of scary to people. Uh, the, the longer an idea has been on the shelf, the more comfortable people are with it, regardless of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. And th- what I try to, uh, to articulate or explain in the piece, among other things, is that the ideas that underline Bitcoin are actually very old. The technology is new. But the concept, of, uh, the concept that money, when its supply is fixed, retains its value is actually a very, very old idea. It's been around for thousands of years. That's why gold was the the lingua franca of the monetary universe for so long, because it had that relatively consistent supply. And where it didn't, uh, economies collapsed. The, The term seniorage comes from the prerogative of princes to basically change the amount of gold that was in each of their coins in ways that was effectively a form of inflation so the the concept is very old, and a lot of economists over the, the course of history have articulated a lot of the principles that underlie Bitcoin. And so you hear a lot of people in Bitcoin think of they kind of treat Satoshi like the you know the the gospels in the Bible. It's like, well, Satoshi is this, and like basically there's no history before Satoshi. And in fact, there's an enormous amount of of uh, of important thinking about about monetary policy that precedes uh, Satoshi that's re- relevant to why Bitcoin is good. And I think by aligning, by showing how uh, uh, Satoshi's white paper and Bitcoin are really just the latest manifestation of a much longer intellectual tradition, that's a way of getting people in Washington to say, okay, this isn't some sort of newfangled crazy thing that makes no sense. This is actually part of a a longer tradition that that I can get some sort of mental handle on.
1: One of the things that has alarmed me is progressives, liberals, Democrats, center-left, and the lack of concern about the privacy uh, that CBDCs will play a part in. I'm old enough to have lived through the Patriot Act and how much pushback uh, that received from liberals, but it seems to be completely absent for what is arguably a much, much worse scenario. Where was the shift in concern for privacy from the left? Can you pinpoint that over the past couple decades?
0: You know what, it's interesting. I think if you think about... Small L classical liberalism of the 18th century Enlightenment variety versus the more modern left and the more sort of, you know, Trumpy right. The difference between that classical liberalism and either poll is that classical liberalism is very much about this idea that the reason why the government's powers have to be limited is because one day the government would be controlled by people who are against you. So you want to make sure that when the government is run by people who are against you, you are less vulnerable to the government. It may feel good that the government today is on your side and supporting what you want, but what if it's not, right? And I think that the, uh, the more sort of modern left that's a, that is cr- critical of that liberal philosophy and the modern right, which is critical of that liberal philosophy, looks at it more as a pure power struggle as well, basically... Our lesson from that is we should always run things and make sure the other side doesn't. And, and so what you see on both sides, frankly, is uh, when, when the right is in power, you hear a lot more people on the left use liberal arguments. And when the left is in power, you hear a lot more people on the right use liberal arguments. Uh, but there's only uh, a, a, a smaller cohort of people who are consistently using those arguments regardless of who's in power. And Bitcoin is the kind of technology or tool or instrument that, that works in either direction. It's, it's, a, it's a protection against censorship from both the right or the left.
1: One of the concerns from the left is how Bitcoin might affect government's ability to provide services. Do you think it is possible that Bitcoin could erode the state's ability to provide a level of welfare that society might otherwise not be willing to provide?
0: Yes and no. Uh, so the one of the things I write about a lot in uh, the National Affairs article that you mentioned earlier is how the the inexorable rise of the federal debt is creating this vicious cycle where we have to print more money to fund the debt, and that means that each dollar is worth less, all else being equal, which is effectively inflation. There's obviously now the modern monetary theorists who argue that uh, that that doesn't matter. Uh, we can get into if you want why they why that's that's terribly wrong headed but but that is but that's but that's the sort of that you hear that argument that deficits don't matter and uh, uh, and either we can just basically run a deficit and fund these fund this spending or we can raise taxes to fund the spending and what i would say is something a little different which is that if you look around the world and you look at the countries that have had the most success at providing a safety net for their for their people um, they've done it in a way that we aren't doing it. So you get to take healthcare as an example, you know, I think a lot of people have the impression the reason why there are tens of millions of people who are uninsured in America is because we're not a sufficiently generous country in terms of what we spend on healthcare in terms of government spending. And that's actually not true. Government spending per capita on healthcare in the US is higher than any other country in the world. It's just that because the price of healthcare is so high, that spending doesn't go far enough. Uh, in the U.S. To, uh, to to cover everyone's healthcare costs. Similarly with education, you hear people say, well, the reason why ed- our educational outcomes are so bad is because we don't spend enough on education. But actually, uh, per-pupil spending on K-12 through education in the U.S. is higher than in any other, any other country in the world, and yet we get such terrible outcomes for it, let alone what college costs in the U.S. or what grad school costs in the U.S. So on, on a lot of these areas where um, where we're failing, lower income people to provide those essential social services, um, it's not because we're not spending enough. It's because we have f- invented ways of spending the money in a way that's profoundly inefficient, that rewards cronyism uh, and incumbent industries and doesn't try to tr- try to um, serve the taxpayer and and the recipient of those services in the best possible way. And so we have a lot to learn from from other countries about how to do that better. And, and I think that's one area where we found a lot of ability to be original in the context of the American public policy debate.
1: My last question on Bitcoin is getting your thoughts on how to better position Bitcoin for Democratic leaders as well as progressive voters. Million dollar question.
0: Well, give me your answer and then I'll give you mine. I mean, you're, you, this is what you spend your time on. So I, I, I would rather learn from you on this, on this topic.
1: It'd be challenging for me to... to answer it for democratic leaders. Uh, I tried to take the angle, uh, at least with on Twitter and social media, with regard to, you know, one on one conversation. And again, it comes back to this idea of, are you tied to the means of obtaining the goal that you want? Or are you tied to the actual outcome, the end? What is it that you want? right? Do you want to improve economic security for marginalized communities? Okay. If that's the case, then what is the best way that we can get there? So then I position Bitcoin within that framework to say that it can get us for all the aforementioned reasons that we've, we've previously discussed. So it's really addressing what the person's individual values and concerns are, and then mapping Bitcoin onto that to see how it meshes Together, I do not have the expertise to be able to say how to best uh, pitch it to politicians. Though,
0: well, every politician is different and and has uh, and has different things that they care about or respond to. I'd say a couple of things. I I think that there's there's both there's there's the positive case and there's the rebutting the negative case, right? So, on the rebutting the negative case side, there's a couple things that uh, that progressive politicians. Tend to highlight, which are obviously the energy uh, issue with Bitcoin and um, what they see as a Bitcoin being used as a tool for tax evasion. So those are two areas that I think can be addressed in the sense that there are ways to uh, to to make sure that people pay their taxes, and there are ways to uh, Bitcoin. There, there are ways to defend Bitcoin on the energy uh, on the energy piece. So I, I won't spend too much time on that because that's well trod territory for your audience. On the flip side, in terms of what are the positive things, like why should you affirmatively uh, support Bitcoin as opposed to merely not opposing it? And uh, I I would use this as as an analogy. You know, we, we, um, we talk a lot in policy circles about the virtue of everyone owning their home, they're owning their own home instead of having to rent from somebody. Why is that? It's because we understand two things about home ownership. One, that home values tend to go up and so when you own a home, it's a store, a nest egg of your own wealth that, that increases over time. And that creates a certain security for yourself and your kids and your grandkids. That's really important to social mobility. And uh, the other thing about uh, owning a home is that it's, um, that it's uh, a sense of of security that you you're saving for the future. You know, that there's a um, that, you know, y- you build something, you own it, and then it's, it's there, it, it passes on to you. It's not merely just shelter in the sort of, you know, direct utility sense, but something that, um, that allows you to, uh, uh, to, to grow your wealth, to have something to borrow off of if you need to finance other things, et cetera. And, and there's a certain limited supply of homes out there to, to, to buy. So Bitcoin is basically a version of that that isn't a big ticket item. So let's say, you know, in Austin, where I live, you know, the median home price probably right now is $300,000, $400,000. Not everyone can afford a $400,000 home. They don't have the, the salary to pay for the mortgage. They don't have the savings to pay for the down payment. So a home in that way is out of reach for them in, in, at today's prices. But again, you can own 10 cents worth of Bitcoin. You can own $100 worth of Bitcoin. You can can put away that little bit of your paycheck every week or every other week in a way that's hard to do in terms of taking out a mortgage. But the same basic math, the same basic principles apply in in terms of if you're willing to work hard and save and be frugal and, and live for tomorrow rather than today, Bitcoin gives you the ability to do that in a way that, Home ownership does not for everyone because home prices continue to get so expensive. And I think that one, you know, we, we talk in the, in the Bitcoin world, you hear a lot of people use the term low tr- time preference or high time preference, right? And the, I, I really do think that this is a, uh, you know, if you think about the, 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 group of, the group of Americans who grew up in the Depression, and you hear them talk about how much they, they abhor debt, and how much they believe in saving because they went through that time when if you if you didn't have those things, you really were vulnerable. They're all scarred by that, right? But the problem is because of the inflationary environment where you get a 0.02% interest rate on your checking account that charges you $50 for the courtesy of having a balance and inflation is 7.5%, like you're Like punished for saving. The government's policies punish you for saving today. And the policies of the big banks punish you for saving. Bitcoin comes along, and now you're actually rewarded again for saving in a way that hasn't been true in many decades. And once you create that ability for people to be rewarded for saving, you create an economic reward and an economic incentive for them to save for the future. That then creates this ability for for lower income people to save and, and, and create a culture of saving that benefits them in a way that you know, you hear a lot of people in in financials as well, you know, people just don't save for the future. They're just just living for today. They're just, you know, eating potato chips and sitting around and being lazy. Like, no, no, actually, we've destroyed their incentives to save. And let's restore those incentives through Bitcoin. And and that can be a major engine of social mobility in the future. There's no real substitute for hard work and saving and frugality if you really want to rise up in the world. And Bitcoin is a, if it, more than anything else, a, a tool for restoring that tradition, that culture, that that sense of the possibilities of what the future can bring if you work hard and save for your own future.
1: I've often argued that Bitcoin is both investment and philanthropy. That it's okay to be greedy with Bitcoin because it's going to benefit everybody else as well. Yeah. So I would be uh, remiss if I didn't ask you about healthcare policy, even though this is a uh, Bitcoin podcast. So one of the two uh, thoughts that you've laid out, I think very succinctly here that I would like to quote are, liberals believe that healthcare is treated as a market commodity today, but should not be. And conservatives think that healthcare is not treated as a market commodity, but should be. In addition, you say, we experience the downsides of both the market and heavy government involvement without reaping the benefits of either. So I'd like to know, how do we get to experience the upside of both government involvement and the free market?
0: Well, uh, so you're you're quoting from another National Affairs article I wrote, I think, uh, on healthcare a while ago. Now that was probably that's probably like a ten year old article. It's amazing how time flies. And and I think that that general uh, sentiment you hear still a lot, which is that I think on the on the left you hear people say, well, uh, it's kind of like my six year old self. You know, healthcare should it should never be uh, should never intersect with economics. Your your ability to live and be healthy should never be subject to economic conditions, which is a very old idea. It goes back to the Hippocratic Oath, very, again, a long lineage for that that spirit and that tradition, and it comes from a very noble place. Um, And at the same time, I think the insight of the libertarian or free market side of the equation is that in the rest of the economy, we understand that competition, innovation, disruption lead, you know, in a fair market, not one that's rigged to reward incumbents. In a, but in a fair and competitive market, the the that that market competition drives people to deliver better products at a lower price with higher quality over time, and we see this in in other areas of our lives, which is why we still have you know a, a market economy today, and 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 so does most of the rest of the advanced world. The uh, so how do you balance those two things in healthcare? How do you balance the the noble instinct that we all have? To ensure that healthcare is not merely a market good, that we that we ensure some sort of basic, basic standard uh, where everybody gets access to a basic level of healthcare, which is something that has overwhelming support in public public opinion polls. I I, I quote in one of my pieces at freeop.org a speech that Ronald Reagan gave in 1964, where he says uh, if every if there's anyone in America who cannot afford the medical care he or she needs, we should fund it, as the government should fund it, the taxpayers should fund it. And this is Ronald Reagan, the guy that everybody thinks of as this sort of free market ideologue. He wasn't really. He was actually a New Deal Democrat who um, who who would, who would argue that, uh, that, uh, that he didn't change, that the, the Democratic Party changed around him, but that he remained a New Deal Democrat um and wh- whether you agree with that or not the point is this is an example of perhaps where when that was the case in his own in his own thinking and um there's others people there's others in the in the free market world who've had the same view friedrich hayek the famous free market economist uh, made the argument in one of his uh, books the constitution of liberty that um, the risks of 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 death of from illness or from accident are, are the kind of thing that we human beings are just very bad at predicting. And so it is appropriate for there to be some government involvement in providing insurance uh, from what protection from what he called the hazards of life that, that would help people navigate those, uh, those risks at a certain level. And again, it, it, it pulls really well the idea that, that everyone should have some access to, to health care. Where things get complicated, it's a little bit like equal opportunity. It's one thing to say, well, everyone should have access, everyone should have healthcare is a right, right? This is the the bumper sticker slogan we hear from our from our friends on the left. And your list, many of your listeners may may agree with that. Say, Well, yeah, healthcare is a right. Well, okay. Is does that right include Viagra? Does that right include the right to a two million dollar procedure that only costs two million dollars because the manufacturer of that that procedure decided to charge $2 million. So we just basically accept whatever price the healthcare industry wants to charge because healthcare is a right? Or do we say, no, you know, here's a basic level of care we're going to guarantee. And anything above that is either up to the consumer or will be a case by case thing or have some other thought process behind. Right. So this is, this is kind of the point is that it's a cliche to say healthcare is a right. It's a cliche to say free markets work. But when it comes to healthcare, you immediately run into the complexity of it, uh, which is to say, we may want to guarantee a base level of healthcare for everybody. But what is that? Right. And what we, what should we pay for that? And what should we offer in that basket of things that we consider the baseline of healthcare? And again, this is an area where the U.S. has just done a bad job. We've been kind of schizophrenic, where we said for some people we're going to offer guarantee nothing, and for others we're going to guarantee you know uh, the moon. And, uh, and 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 not in a way that's aligned with who really needs the help, who's really vulnerable, who really struggles to afford it, but it, with with a bunch of idiosyncratic, irrational uh, uh, structures that have been built up over time. And here again, we can learn from other countries where um, you don't have to have a, a, a debate about healthcare where the left wins and the right loses or vice versa. Uh, there are countries, and we talk about this in our in our project, the World Index of Healthcare Innovation, where you look at Switzerland, say. Switzerland has basically Obamacare for all, as opposed to if if Bernie is Medicare for all single payer, uh, Switzerland has something that you could call Obamacare for all where, or Medicare Advantage for all is what we would call it, where it's private insurance that delivers the coverage, but the coverage is subsidized and regulated in ways to ensure that everyone gets a basic level of access to health care. And that system works pretty well. It's pretty popular in Switzerland. Some people grumble that it's expensive, but it's not, certainly not compared to the U.S. system. And it's when we have freedom of choice of of your insurer, of your doc, of your doctor, of your hospital, in ways that have turned out to to work pretty well, all all things considered. So there are models out there in healthcare that show that you can do both. You can achieve the progressive goal of universal, affordable healthcare and access to health insurance, and that protection from the hazards of life, while also having a system that's fiscally sustainable, fiscally rational, that doesn't break break the budget and um, really my own background in healthcare policy is what led me to build free up because what i learned from working on healthcare policy is that policy is not that zero sum game where the left has to win and the right has to lose or vice versa there's a way of actually achieving both progressive outcomes and uh, and having, having a freer system and a more innovative system at the same time you can do all of those things at the same time and that's not just true in healthcare It's true in in the financial sectors we've been talking about with Bitcoin. It's true in the housing sector where NIMBY zoning laws have prevented growth in the supply of housing, making housing scarcer and and less affordable. There are all sorts of areas of of the economy where a more innovative market-based approach, if designed the right way, can be more inclusive as well.
1: One of the uh, boogeymans from the progressives is personal responsibility. And yet, uh, I see that uh, the consequences of that uh, every day at work. And I'm reminded of a paper from 1977, uh, a physician by the name of, I believe it was Jonathan uh, Knowles from Harvard. And he, the paper was entitled The Responsibility of the Individual. And he says, Meanwhile, the people have been led to believe that a national health service, more doctors, a greater use of high cost, hospital based technologies will improve health. Unfortunately, none of them will, he says. Which gets me to, Something that I've been thinking a lot about, and that is, how do we actually drive down medical costs if it's our lifestyle choices, the environment, and not simply medical care that we receive that are the primary determinants of health? How do we how do we tackle that? How do we incentivize these healthier choices?
0: This is a uh, an example of the conventional wisdom that I that I disagree with in an important ways. So you you'll hear people say, "Well, the reason why healthcare in America is so expensive is because." We're obese. We sit around. We watch football and, and snack on potato chips and eat McDonald's. So that's why our healthcare system is expensive. And that's not true. If you actually look at the data and, and look at other countries' healthcare costs and adjust for differences in obesity and, and diabetes and things like that, our our healthcare prices are still way out of whack. Um, you know, if you have to have uh, you know uh, a kidney dialysis because your kidney has failed because you've been a diabetic and your kidney has failed the price of that procedure in the US is more expensive than it is in other countries. Same with, um, you know, a lot of other things, cancer treatments or what have you. So the, the, the problem is not actually that people are, have chronic disease and that's why we spend too much on healthcare. It's that the unit prices of the services that we provide are higher. Another, other, another important element of this is that we're never gonna live forever right? We're all going to die of something. And so, okay, maybe you you run half marathons and you only eat granola and, and asparagus and you uh, you live till you're 100. Well, you're not going to live till you're 500. You're going to live till you're 100. And if you're not going to die of obesity, you might die of Alzheimer's or cancer or something else, which is also very expensive to treat. So you're never going to avoid, if you want to have a really cheap healthcare system, the best way to have a cheap healthcare system is for everyone to die of tuberculosis when they're 32. Then you have a really cheap healthcare system because you you don't deal with any of these old age, rich country problems like cancer and Alzheimer's and, and diabetic nephropathy. So paradox is if you really wanna have a cheap healthcare system, have a really poor healthcare system, which everybody dies young. If everyone is living longer, you're pretty much guaranteed to have a more expensive healthcare system than you did before. Uh, and, and so I feel like uh, while it's very important in terms of public health and equal opportunity to ensure, to work hard to ensure that everybody has the opportunity to live as long as possible and to live as healthfully as possible, we shouldn't rely on good health outcomes being the driver of lower healthcare costs. We should see them as kind of independent problems.
1: My last question with regard to healthcare policy a uh, fellow Bain alumnus, Richard Kosh, popularized the Pareto principle. The 80 rule, is there an 80-20 application to healthcare policy as it relates to either improving outcomes or reducing costs?
0: Yes and no. Uh, and I would say uh, no in the areas where it's conventionally thought of as being uh, applicable and yes in areas that often miss or uh, are under the radar. So you'll hear people say, well, you know, um, 80% of the healthcare spend comes from 20% of the people. And so that's where we've got to focus our energies to reduce healthcare costs, say. That's a, a conventional application of the principle. The problem with that principle is that you don't know ahead of time who the 20, uh, 20% are going to be that, that incur 80% of the spend, because you know you don't know ahead of time whether you're going to be the person who gets the cancer or the Alzheimer's disease. Uh, than uh, or or a stroke or a heart attack, you can know a little bit in the sense of obviously if you've got high cholesterol, you've got obesity, you might have some risk factors for things. But there are a lot of health problems for which you don't. You get in a car accident, you get a stray bullet. You know there are a lot of things about your life that are not completely predictable, and so um, you can't simply manage people's lives in a way of of, of avoiding those the, those eighty uh, percent spend kind of outcomes cuz you can't completely predict the future. But there are other examples within our system where there is an 8020 rule that's that's worth paying attention to. One that we've written about at FreeOp is drug pricing. So, you know, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, drug pricing, we have to we have to reduce drug prices by having, for example, a universal system of price controls where we regulate the price of every drug. And the mistake with that is that Actually, for 90 percent of the prescriptions, actually more than 90 percent of the prescriptions that are prescribed by doctors, uh, they're for generic drugs that are cheaper in the United States than they are in any other country in the world. The problem is that about half of what we spend on prescription drugs in this country is for 0.4 percent of the prescriptions, which are for biologic drugs, the newfangled biotech drugs that are are, are being generated out of Uh, A lot of the newfangled companies like Biogen and Genentech and places like that, those drugs, for reasons that have to do with the legal way in which those drugs are regulated in the United States, are able to charge much higher prices because they have much longer windows of monopoly power, pricing power, relative to more traditional, so called small molecule pills that you could synthesize in a chemistry lab. And so that's an example of a situation where, okay, if you're concerned about the problem of drug pricing specifically, it turns out the, the 80-20 principle is very relevant because if you look at the, 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 the 0.4% of the drugs that drive 50% of the spend, you realize that there's a particular legal and regulatory policy problem that is creating that, that ballooning of that particular narrow slice of, of the universe and that the rest of the, the vast majority of the prescription drug market is actually reasonably healthy, reasonably competitive, works fine. And, and so that's an example of where reform can really be targeted towards the areas where, uh, where there are the most problems.
1: So I don't have a final question for you, but rather I'm going to posit something for your reflection here. So I've listened to several hours of your interviews, and I've read many of your articles. You have gone from medical school to Bain Capital to political campaigns to the hedge fund world and now a political think tank. A think tank that is trying to take on some of the most challenging problems that face us today and you're trying to bring the right and left together. I suspect that you have taken these steps, not for notoriety or fortune, but I believe an increasing desire to do good on a larger and larger scale. You only leave a career in medicine if you are convinced you can make a greater impact elsewhere. So I'm beginning to believe that you're a bit of a dreamer. Are you not overgroy
0: You know, that's a, uh, that's a good way to put it. You know, I mean, I, I, I appreciate you, 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 uh, you, the way you, you put that together. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, the way I've thought about it is somebody has to work on these problems. Um, you know, it's, it's very easy and tempting to either focus on just, you know, pursuing your professional opportunities and trying to be successful economically. And it's tempting to when you're if you decide you want to be public spirit and go into, into public policy or achieve change in some other way to focus on things you think you can solve. Right. Well, you know, don't try to solve healthcare That's too big. Try to solve this little thing over here that allows you to make a difference in some people's lives. And, and that way you can at least feel like you, you, you've, you've accomplished something. And the way I look at it is is almost the exact opposite of that, which is to say that if you look throughout history and you look at the people who've accomplished things that we we look at and think of, wow, that was really an incredibly important uh, uh, impact that that individual had. It's because they were kind of crazy enough to believe that it was possible to have that impact. And they worked backwards from there. It's like, okay, it may seem crazy that I can you know, change my country or change this particular sector of the economy or whatever it is. But if if you're trying to do that, what do you need to do to achieve that? And um, if you actually work backwards from there, you realize that the the approach you need to have to achieve something very, very big is very different from the approach you need to have to achieve something relatively incremental or small. And the way I look at my life is, and again, it's, it's, it's kind of the way I'm wired, I guess, in a way, but I don't want to wake up when I'm 80 and look back on my life and feel like with all the the opportunities that I've been blessed to have, that I didn't do everything possible to use those opportunities to their fullest extent. You know, there's, there's the, there's the old adage that to those who much is given much is expected. And, um, I very much, uh, I'm a believer in that in my own life, that 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 I expect that of myself because I've been given a lot and just trying to do my part. And if if it turns out that I that I don't succeed, well, I certainly won't have any regrets for having tried.
1: Do you know what uh, Coach Herb Brooks said to the hockey players before the start of the third period nearly 42 years ago?
0: Did he use that quote? I, I, I remember he may have used that quote, actually, uh, didn't he? It's, 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 it's,
1: he might have, but he has another memorable one
0: uh remind me of the other one i I remember watch the movie. i remember i watched the movie miracle but i just want it's been a while so remind me
1: as he's heading out the locker room uh, he turns around and looks at the players and he says if you lose this game you will take it to your graves Mm. your fucking graves yeah and he turns around walks out the rest is history so here's the big dreams over Croy.
0: thank you and you know i I I'll, Before, that's a beautiful flourish, and I, I want to let you conclude that. But I want to say one thing, which is that that's part of what motivates me too. With all the stuff that we work on at Freeop, is that it's not merely that these are big problems that need to be solved; these are big problems that have to be solved. If we don't solve them, the amount of suffering, the amount of tragedy that so many hundreds of millions of people in our country and around the world will face. Is is hard to comprehend, and that's what gets me out of bed every day. Uh, is that we have to solve these problems, and I, and I hope that uh, uh, that all of your listeners uh, will will join me in that in that quest, and we can all find ways to work together to to solve these big problems.
1: Absolutely. Please tell the listeners where they can find you and where they can find Free Up.
0: Uh, so they can find Free op. It's it's one e, despite the pronunciation f r e o p p dot o r g, and also on Twitter f r e o p p. And uh, if you want to follow me directly, um, my uh, Twitter handle is just my first name A v i k. That's the best way to follow my stuff.
1: Fantastic! Thank you so much, Ovik. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mark.